Welcome to the Trinity Church Aberdeen podcast, where you can listen to our most recent sermons. To find out more about who we are and what we believe, visit trinityaberdeen.org.uk. runner, but I remember as a kid cross-country running. Uh, it involved running around sports fields for hours, um, although I remember one run that involved this really steep downward hill, and then the steepest hill back up. It was, it was a really muddy path with kind of bushes and trees leaning in menacingly, and for, for some reason it was called Marriage Hill, and it, and it was brutal. And the, 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 the fit, you know, driving their legs up the hill, the less fit of us panting and puffing and kind of trying hard just to keep going, the, the desire, the longing at that point just to sit in the mud and say, no more. Um, what was annoying was it was actually halfway around the course, so you had to keep going, whatever. Now, now whatever your affection for running or lack of it, or lack of it for running particularly, God, God wants us to view the life of faith as one of running and finishing a race. It's there, actually in the end of 12 verse 1. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Being a follower of Jesus, it's a race. Not, not a race where we're trying to beat each other. No, it's a, a team race, a race where the key thing is that we all finish. We, we run together and finish together. And it's more like a marathon uh, than a sprint. It's a race we run with endurance rather than as fast as possible. And it's, it's a race where there's, there's sweat and there's hard work, you know, like, like praying for a friend year after year after year. There are moments of wonderful views and, and downhills, like, like wonderful church services or, or deep friendships. There are, there are moments of uphill where all we can do is look at our feet and force ourselves to take one more step, like those, those days when you're reading your Bible feels like wading through treacle when we see friends abandoning their faith or, and, and discouragement sets in. And like those cross-country runs, the temptation to give up is often there to say, you know, Jesus, I've had enough uh, to walk out of this building and never come back. But as the writer has said before, we are not those who shrink back. We are not those who drift and give up. No, we're those of faith. We're those who keep going. Isn't that what we want tonight? We want to be people who keep going with Jesus. We know him. We love him. We want to be with them in that future city that we thought about last week. Perhaps you've seen others drift and you just don't want to do the same. You, you know Jesus' love for you and you never want to abandon him. Well, if that's you, and I hope it's many of us, Hebrews chapter 11 is here to help us. It's here to guide us, to keep us on the path. And the writer's done it by pointing us to the lives of some key people and events in the Old Testament. He called them in, in 12 verse 1, so great a cloud of witnesses, not just spectators, but, but people whose lives tell us something. They're not just examples to follow, but their faith-filled lives of the past pointing us to some wonderful truths, truths to help us keep going. 
And they're witnessing so far, over the last few weeks we've seen, it's shown us God is good at making the unseen seen. The race has an end goal that God's going to bring about for those who trust him. That's what we saw two weeks ago. And then the lives of Abraham and his family showed us that this future, this, this finish line, it's this city, a wonderful city that has, has come in Christ and is yet still to come. And now in the rest of the chapter, the writer digs down a little bit more. So if, if Abraham didn't receive the city, what about the others? What about Moses who came, or those who came after? Did they receive the promise of God? Has it already come? And to that answer, the writer begins to open up what the life of faith looks like. And first he's going to show us the root and show us what it's going to be like so that we don't get distracted or misled. And then he's going to show us what we, we need us to drive us to the finish line, what our sights need to be fully set upon. Put it simply, we'll see the good, we'll see the bad, and we'll see the perfect. So firstly, let's look at this route. It's, it's a route, firstly, that's, that can be marked by successes. It's a route that can be marked by success, the good. Now, to give us a sense of the, the passage, it's a bit of a kind of successes, suffering, sandwich. Okay, suffering, uh, the, the bad is, is, the, is the bread, and the success, the good, is the filling. So we get uh, Moses and his parents in 23 to 28, they're facing mistreatment, reproach, anger of the king. There's our suffering bit. Then the writer then speaks of others involved in the exodus and their, their entry into the land, but here we see successes. And, and then he starts to list others who've had successes in verse 32. We get this extraordinary list, but then halfway through 35, we get the other piece of bread. Some were tortured and then there are much more, more sufferings to come. So what we're going to do is we'll start by looking at the filling, um, and then we'll move to the bread. So the filling, the fact that the root of this race can be marked by success, the good. Now the thing is, God is at work in his people, and so through them and in them, we do see successes. Verse 28, we see God's extraordinary hand in the exodus. Through the death of the Passover lambs, the people were saved from the destroyer. There's incredible safety. And not just from the destroyer, but verse 29, from the Egyptians as the people walk through the Red Sea and the Egyptian army is drowned. And then as the people of God finally enter the promised land, verse 30, they have extraordinary success. The walls of Jericho fall down. And it's not just national success. There's wonderful individual rescue too, isn't there? Rahab. Rahab is saved. And then verse 32, what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, who made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, and women received back their dead by resurrection. What a wonderful list of successes. An amazing rescue, rescue from death, there's glorious defeat of enemies, they're seeing some of God's promises of land, of a people coming to fruition. And when we look back over the history of God's people, we see God doing amazing things. We see him performing miracles, miracles that we'd never even have dreamt of. You know, like, like saving a whole nation of Egypt, from Egypt through miraculous plagues, destruction, parting of the Red Sea. 
or like keeping Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego alive in the fiery furnace, if you know that story of Daniel. Perhaps that's what he's saying when he says, in quenching the power of fire. There's no explanation there apart from God working miraculously. But also we see here God bringing successes, not just through miracles, but through what we'd call acts of providence. In other words, he's, he uses normal people, normal things of life to bring about his plan. You know, he helps kings enforce justice. He uses spies to save Rahab. God here is he's working in wonderful ways through and in those who live by faith. The, the root of this race can be marked with success. And perhaps you can testify to that. Whether God doing miracles or, or God using normal means to bring about good in your life. You know, you, you've seen people who are sick get better. You've seen a friend of yours become a Christian. You've conquered a sin in your life. You've managed to avoid persecution despite being faithful. You've seen your children grow up believing in Christ. A, a church you were part of grew and had faithful leadership. You, you loved the music and God changed you through the sermons. Your, your house group had a deepening fellowship and times of uplifting Bible study. By faith, God has somehow brought good into your life. Successes. It's like, it's like the moments in the race when you, you feel okay. You've had a sugar kick from your glucose tablets. The, the terrain is kind to your knees and the views are glorious. Your spirits lift. It's a boost to our faith. The route can be marked by success. Isn't that wonderful? God giving us glimpses of his care for us. God giving us glimpses of his rescue and what the, the future's going to look like. God bringing peace for a season into our lives or or joy, or rest. Thanks be to God. May we be people who celebrate and praise Him. The root can be marked by success, the good. But it's also it's a root that can be marked by sufferings, the bad. Here we get to the bread of the sandwich. Now verse 23, by faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Right there, Moses' parents, they're, they're putting themselves up against the king of Egypt. They're risking their lives for the sake of saving this child. And this is just magnified in Moses' life. Moses begins, because he's living by faith, to, to choose God's route, not the easy route. He chooses to be known as one of God's, not the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He loses the life of a wealthy prince in the luxuries of Egypt and instead faces scorn, reproach, the anger of the king. What a dampener on all the wonderful successes we've just seen. And then it gets worse as well. The shift in the middle of verse 35 is, is so stark, isn't it? Verse 35, women receive back their dead by resurrection. Wonderful. Some were tortured. What? Refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned sawn in two, they were killed with a sword, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. You know, wow, this doesn't mince his words. I thought that Isaiah was perhaps the one cut in two, Jeremiah was perhaps the one stoned. They're, they're tragic endings to faithful lives, some died for their faith. Some are just completely ostracized. They're cut off. They're left for dead. 
Rather than in wonderful community, they're, they're alone. Rather than feeling the glories of, of God's life, they stare a death in the face. And we know this isn't just back in the Old Testament. It's been the story of history, the early church. The church under Rome, the persecution over the years across the nations. Perhaps you know of someone who's just had it really hard. That feeling that life is just against them. Whether ill health, bereavement, financial troubles, people being unkind, abusive to them, the root can be marked with suffering, the bad. Now, why? Why did these guys face this? Is it because of their failings? Did they deserve it? Was God's wrath coming on them and him abandoning them? Well, absolutely not. These people all lived by faith and through faith. Moses, he suffered because he made decisions that sided with Christ and God's people. He had his eyes on God himself. And all those who suffered in verse 35 onwards, it's, it's all from verse 33, those who are living through faith. Then verse 38, the writer gives an extraordinary commendation of whom the world was not worthy temptation to see the lives of these men and women facing scorn and hardship and to think they should be ashamed of themselves. They're clearly the unworthy ones. We should forget them, abandon them. We feel that they're, they're kind of their bad luck might rub off on us somehow. But no way, these are the worthy ones. More worthy than the world itself. And just to make sure we don't understand, again, verse 39, and all these, though commended through their faith, they were commended. The suffering did not signal that these people were abandoned, uh, that these people had abandoned God. By faith, some avoided the sword, and by faith, some die by the sword. By faith, some rose from the dead. By faith, some died, looking forward to another resurrection. Their faith, it's not the determining factor in it all. Suffering does not mean God has left you. Suffering does not mean God hates you. He, he wants you to suffer. And as we'll see next week, it, it might be God's fatherly hand shaping and changing us. But your faith is not the determining factor in having a root marked by suffering. God is. That's the shock. We want us to be in control, but no. If he's the one who works the miracles, then he's the one who chooses not to work the miracles. If he's the one to save by the sword, then he's the one to let die by the sword. In general, we have a sense from Scripture as to why God allows suffering on the big scale, but on the specifics, we just don't know. We don't know why us, why now, why this long or this hard. We do know he's the one in control. We know he's good. We know he's at work. We know he's in it all somehow. But we also know this suffering is hard and real. Sometimes when people become followers of Jesus, they, they think being with Jesus would just mean life of success. Life's now going to go well. Or we, or we think if we stick with Jesus, our church is always going to grow. Our friends will actually be really interested. Our local community will love us being here. But the writer to the Hebrews is showing us life is not like that. The root can be marked with suffering, hardship, and even death. 
The race has its uphills. It slogs in the darkness, moments when the, the pain screaming through your muscles slows us right down and we feel like the race is never going to end. I know some of us might come from countries where there is a real threat to those who follow Jesus. For us here in Scotland, there, there might be scorn, rebuke, family ostracizing us, friends leaving us out. There might be bullying at school. Might be frustrations as we battle sin, people we pray for again and again and again who don't get better or who don't turn to Christ. We face financial difficulties, health problems, life's tiring, it's hard. And this shouldn't surprise us. God has never guaranteed the good life. Scripture shows us the life of faith, it's marked with suffering. But the writer wants us to see more than this. He wants knowing this to actually help us keep going. And to do that, we need to see that the successes and the sufferings are not the finish line. The successes and the sufferings are not the finish line. Verse 39, it's emphatic. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. They did not receive what was promised. Now you might be thinking, well, some did obtain promises, like they got to the promised land. But this comment here in verse 39 doesn't have those kind of promises in mind. Here it's not promises plural, but promise, singular. And it's not just any old promise. It's literally they did not receive the promise. They didn't receive the final salvation, the better country, the heavenly rest. All that went on in their life was not the finish line. Now, the sufferings we experience, we don't often mistake them for the finish line, do we? We, we know the ending should be better, a wonderful hope, a glorious city, but, but they can cloud our view. They can take away our hope. They can lead us to despair. As our sufferings kind of crowd in on us, we forget there's more. We forget they're just events on the way. Have you ever felt that? I don't know, a situation, perhaps a difficult relationship or an ill health, or feeling far from God, and it, it can just press in in a way that, that means you can't see anything else. Feelings feel numb, the days become the same. It's as if we find ourselves running in a fog, and any hope of getting out of it just disappears. But somehow we need to see the unseen. We need to see that they're not the finish line, Yes, they're tough. Yes, they hurt and might even kill us, but they're not all that life is. They're not the only experience we'll enjoy. There's a city to come. Our sufferings, they're not the finish line. But nor are our successes. You know, even those who saw the, the walls of Jericho fall, even those who experienced the defeat of the Philistines, even those who saw dead brought back to life, they did not receive what was promised. Boy, they can feel like it, can't they? The highs of a wonderful time with friends, the, the highs of a great time with brothers and sisters worshiping the Lord, the joys when life's going well, when we feel close to God himself. But we must remember they are not the finish line either. We mustn't make them the be-all and end-all. That's part of the problem with the prosperity gospel. They've made God's blessings in this life the measure of salvation. You know, they said, if you have wealth now, you have it all. If you have good health, welcome to paradise. 
Alongside that, they've, they've also forgotten the pain and sufferings we've just thought about to those who, who live by faith. So instead, when good comes, when, when life is marked by success, by happiness, may we be people who give thanks. You remember, it all comes from the Lord. May it lift our eyes up rather than down. May we, we not long for more of it now, but lift our eyes to the finish line when it really comes together, when we're in that heavenly city, all these people did not receive what was promised. The successes, the sufferings, they're not the finish line. But this also means something else, because this means that these saints can't actually be our final view. They're not the final ones we should be looking at. Now, they're good examples to us, people who endured, people who persevered, Whatever life threw at them, 12 verse 1, let us also lay aside every weight. You know, we are to imitate them. They're like good pacemakers along the way. But they haven't made it. They haven't received it all. 11 verse 40, apart from us, they should not be made perfect. They're not in perfection yet because we aren't. It's part of what they're witnessing to throughout this letter. We've seen it again and again. The writer's been showing us that the Old Testament, the people of old, the covenant of old, is not the final revelation of God. It's not the final installment. And here he shows us again. He wants to show these people to us, but to show us so that we realize they're not the final view. They're not the ultimate reality that we need to, that needs to grab our hearts. That they were looking at someone else, actually, and so should we. You know, that's what wonderful Christians do in our lives, isn't it? Rather than lifting themselves up, they, they gently point us to another. We need someone better, someone who's made it, who's in perfection itself. Yes, there's the good and the bad along the way, but we need the perfect. So finally, let's run looking to Jesus, the perfect. 12 verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners much hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Do you see what he says right in the middle? Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. That's what our eyes should be on. That's who our eyes should be on. The saints of old, yes, they live by faith, but, but Jesus Christ is of a whole different order. He's the founder and perfecter of our faith. He's the beginning and the end. The one who isn't just ahead of us, but the one who's with us all the way. And so firstly, we can look to Jesus' perfect work. Do you notice that? He endured even the cross, despising the shame. Jesus was the man of faith. He endured perfectly. He faced all kinds of temptations to drift, to give in. He faced the worst persecution, whipped, scorned, mocked by those he came to save, nailed to a cross. He lived the perfect life. And as we've seen, that cross was a death for us. He even faced the judgment of God for sins that weren't his own. It's a perfect death, all for us, for our good. 
our righteousness, our forgiveness. He wasn't like David, who we thought about this morning, who fell and had to be restored, or like Abraham, who lied and had to repent. We look to Jesus' perfect work. But also we look to his perfect finish. He is now seated. He's received what is promised. He's made it. He's over the finish line. He rose from the dead. He's seated in the heavenly realms. He hasn't just experienced successes in this life. He's reached the true finish line. The eternal, the steadfast, the real. God has vindicated him. Jesus really is the king. We look to him. We keep our eyes on him. And because of his perfect work, his perfect finish, this means we look to Jesus because he's the, the perfecter. The perfecter. Jesus doesn't just get us there himself and then just try and encourage us from the sidelines, kind of cheering us on. We know we need more than that. We're dead in our sins without a savior. We can't, we can't walk in the race, let alone run in it. We're lying flat on our faces at the start line. So he's not just the example, he's the perfecter, the founder and perfecter of our faith, the beginning and the end. He's, he's the one who lived the perfect life to give us new life so we could be in the race. He's the one who died so that we might be forgiven. He's the one who rose again so that we might receive all that he's won for us. His race doesn't just show us the good race, his race actually brings us through it too. Keep your eyes fixed on him because he's the only one who can get you over that finish line. Don't we know this? We live by faith, and it has to be faith, because we can't do it by hard work. The race might be hard work, but we know we need a deeper power, don't we? Much more than we have. We need Jesus' saving power, the power of a crucified Savior who's risen, who's interceding for us. We need him to kind of lift us up and carry us to this race, his perfect work, his perfect finish. So he's the perfecter. And he brings us to the perfect future. Oh, there is a joy, a joy waiting, a joy greater than the fleeting pleasures of sin. There's a wealth more wonderful than all the wealth of Egypt. And it's being with the one we can't see. It's being with God himself. We run this race so that we might end up where Jesus is. Do you notice that wonderful where Jesus had a joy set before him? Where did he end up? At the right hand of God. Well, we end up, if we're with him, with God himself in the heavenly places, in the better country, the joy set before us. Isn't that where we want to be? Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. That's the the only way to make it through the race, the only way to endure, the only sight that should fill our eyes. Yes, there's the good and the bad along the route, but there's also the perfect. Whether you're in a season right now of dark suffering or the season of light of joy and success, may each of us trust that Jesus Christ is bringing us to a better future. Yes, there are some losses as we face scorn, but the whole thing is not loss. It's extraordinary gain. So we get rid of what entangles us and let, let Jesus fill our view. Not the good and the bad, but the perfect. Let's run looking to Jesus. Have him in our view on the good days and the bad days. May we be quick 
to ponder his perfection for us, quick to trust him to get us through this race, quick to depend on him in prayer and look to his counsel and support in his word. And may it be for his glory. Amen.